This is the Door History Podcast and my name is Naomi Clifford. Here at the door we like to push the door, open the door, unlock the door but our aim is to cast some light on hitherto unknown stories of women. So Naomi, I know that you've had a very interesting conversation about a book that is fairly recently published. Yes, the book is by Sharon Wright, who's written this amazing book about the early female aeronauts, so Mm. women who were in the air. Wow. Starting with the first women in balloons. Um, She's a mine of really fascinating information. I think she's got about 32 women in, in there. Balloonists and oh, really? parachutists. Oh, and parachutists? Yes. Okay. Yes. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to hear a little bit about it. Yes, well, in this episode, uh, she focuses on one who's called Letitia Sage, mm-hmm. and it's a fantastic story. Oh, I'm excited. So am I. <laughs> So women in the air, that, that, that seems to be a, a subject for a lot of innuendo and sniggering. Do you want to tell us a bit about sex and balloons now, Sharon, please? I think we'll all be interested. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, it was absolutely right for innuendo, the whole ballooning scene, wasn't it? And balloonomania was actually the name for the complete craze there was for ballooning when they were invented in the 1780s. And one chapter in the book is about Mrs. Sage, Letitia Sage, and it had all the elements of a Georgian farce, really. So, 1780s, absolutely satire central <laughs> for the Georgian cartoonists. So, yes, you had wonderful people like Rowlandson yeah. and Gilray, and, and I'm sure they had a field day with this. It was an absolutely corker of um, a drawing called um, A Sage Lady's Second Experiment by um, Thomas Rowlandson in 1785, and it's got poor Mrs. Um, Mrs. Sage's bottom on full display. She's quite near a sort of lamppost. It's all very rude. But she was the first English woman to fly. And at the same time that they were drumming up support to come and see um, the first English woman being squired into the air by Lunardi, Vincent Lunardi, who was um, an Italian aeronaut, mm-hmm. there was a bet going around because as soon as balloons were invented, men started taking bets on, you know, whether you could have sex in one, basically. And there was a bet laid at, at Brooks's in St. James Street in London in 1785. And it, it actually says in the book is, Lord Chumley has given two guineas to Lord Derby to receive 500 guineas whenever his lordship a woman in a balloon 1,000 <laughs> yards from the earth. So that's <laughs> hilarious, isn't it? Charming. But that was doing the rounds, that kind but, of bet. When poor Mrs. Sage, the actress in the Vavavoom dress, steps into the balloon with the young um, aeronaut, and up they go, unchaperoned into the sky. And for whatever reason, she got onto her hands and knees. She says to tie up the, the curtains. Everyone else had another... So opinion. everyone can see this yes. from the ground, that she's dropped out of sight yes. in the basket. Yeah, so what could she be doing there? there? Exactly. And this idea that she had <clears throat> invented the Mile High Club. And this... This libel really has followed her down 200 years, but I explore in the book her whole life story. Now, I don't think that did happen. 
for various reasons, but it was an amazing adventure. And I think more interesting is the fact that when they crash-landed over in Harrow, this furious farmer was running towards them, but then over the brow of the hill comes the headmaster and boys of Harrow School. <laughs> Carry her off. This actress has what fallen out of the sky and take her off to the pub, you know, to hear us welcome. Oh, that must have been such fun. Yeah, but the most important thing about her is that she then went and wrote her own account of her adventures. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's very rare to have a woman's own account of her own. Yes, adventures. her voice. Yes, yeah. and uh, did she mention this um, so-called no. event? I hope <laughs> she didn't. No, absolutely not. I mean, she was unaware of it all really until mm. later. For her, she just—it's an amazing achievement, mm. wasn't it? And she'd. She'd done it, and she talks in absolute all tones about the sensation of flying, about talking about the the science of it all with the chap she went with, and you know, being carried home in triumph at the end. And it's just about the it biggest does, experience of her life. Really. It, it does sound to me like uh, the uh, the uh, the imputation that she she has got up to mischief in mm. in the in the basket was a way of completely dis- destroying her position her achievement as the first English woman in flight, yeah. just just making her a laughing stock. Well, I think it did and it didn't really, because there were these reports, but there's some also some very, very admiring reports in the press mm. where they absolutely paid homage to her mm-hmm. being well, as brave as a man and to and a real achievement. Yes. And there was, again there was this sense when I started looking into her story that she'd gone to ground in embarrassment. Well she absolutely didn't. I found out that she'd, you know, she'd carried on her career in the theatre. She'd gone back to working as a wardrobe mistress. Mm-hmm. She was from quite an influential theatrical family anyway. She went off to America and went touring. I mean, she had quite the life. And she certainly wasn't, you know, destroyed by some mm-hmm. oh, good for silly Mrs. Sage. joke. Good for Letitia. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the book is full of, of these wild tales, really. Mm-hmm. And it... Uh, Bringing them all together into to one volume has been an absolute delight to read. Thank you. I mean, some very, very tragic stories as well. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely heartbreaking mm. stories. Well, all of the all of the yeah. awful accidents and, and terrible deaths. And... Well, when they started parachuting, because mm. balloons were no longer quite as exciting, the parachutists often came to grief because mm. you had very little control so when you did days. Yeah. And you had more control than the cats they used to throw out on parachutes mm. and monkeys, bless them. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. But again, the courage of these, they were just, they took their freedom in the sky mm. and they took their chances. Yes, at a time when women weren't, yeah. uh, weren't really meant to do things other always than sit to rather still. Yeah. And, yeah. They were always trying to make it legal. Whenever there was an accident, there were furious letters. Mm. When Lily Cove died, there were questions in the house and a bill was introduced to bracket women with children so that they couldn't take part in dangerous acts. Stage acts, yes. but that that died a death. A bit like some of the criticism, perhaps, of mountain female mountaineers now. Yeah, yeah. there's no place for a woman. Or yeah, that men know best. Yes. I mean, nobody bothered that men were were going up and doing these shows, but mm-hmm. the idea was to bracket them with children in the law so mm-hmm. that they would not have any. That's say pretty in it. shocking, isn't it? But women just carried on. And they took the freedom where they could, and it was all quite wild west. So mm-hmm. they just did that proceeding to apprehended things. Fantastic! Really. <laughs> I do love them. I do too. I'm here at Morley College, who have kindly allowed us to use their studios at Morley Radio, with Elaine Andrews. 
we're going to be talking about Emma Cons, who was a very important woman in the history of adult education. Elaine, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do at Morley College? Hello, my name is Elaine. I'm the library manager at Morley College and also the unofficial archivist. And I've worked here since 2001. And you've been interested in Emma Cons for a number of years. Yes, because Emma is the person that got the college started in the first place and she's been very much forgotten. Um, no one's really written a good biography of her, so she remains quite elusive, quite intriguing. Well, I'm very excited to learn more about Emma and perhaps we'll start with her early life in London. We don't know a huge amount about Emma's early life. We know she was born in 1838 and her father was a piano key maker. Emma was the second child in the family. She had two brothers, Frederick and Charles, and four younger sisters, Esther, Ellen, Eliza and Elizabeth. Obviously, her parents liked E names, much as mine did. Emma was an artistic child and she was sent to art school. But when she was about 14, her father became very ill and was unable to work. The family found it hard to manage and the girls had to go out to work. Esther became a teacher and emigrated to Australia. Eliza became a clerk and went to South Africa. Elizabeth, the youngest, became a professional singer. So we have quite an interesting combination of talents here. Yes, all working women, which is very interesting, um, particularly when you think of the uh, work that Emma did later, gave her, her working life must have given her a perspective on the difficulties of working people getting a good education. Yes, and Emma faced quite a lot of prejudice in her working life. She worked with John Ruskin for a while and they worked on restoring illuminated manuscripts. And she also did some work on the windows, stained glass windows, at Merton College, Oxford. During her working life, she worked on engraving watchbacks, silver watchbacks. Um, very skilled, very um, delicate job but she faced a lot of prejudice from male workers to the point where she had to be put in a separate workroom. So it may be this that gave her idea of getting women to be more positive, um, to get some education. And this has been a thread through Emma's whole life, really. Yes, and from, from, from watchback making and engraving, she seems to have invented a whole new career for herself in housing, for instance. Yes, yes. Um, one of the people she met at John Ruskin's was Octavia Hill, who is now more well-known than Emma because of her work in housing, and also she started the National Trust, and there's now a chain of Octavia charity shops. So her name has lived on much better than Emma's, but it was Emma that did a lot of the hard work with the housing. She was basically a rent collector, but she went far and beyond just rent collecting. She tried to improve things for these tenants, took them out on outings. I understand she had a tenement block of her own to manage. Yes, she did. She started Surrey Lodge, which is a stone's throw from here. If you know the area, um, there is a large hotel called the Days Hotel. It was actually built as a hostel, which is interesting because it follows on, obviously, from philanthropy. And then the hostel became this hotel. And it was a massive tenement block. I can't remember how many homes it had in it. They were two, three, four-roomed homes. But you had to be very respectable to get a property here. We found an advert in 
a programme from the old Vic and it was respectable tenants only. Yes, I think this was a standard thing for Guinness Trust and all the other social housing organisations. You had to be very respectable. And they had a playground on the roof and they had laundries. They were well provided for and the tenants were rewarded if they were good tenants by rebates on rent and trips out to the country. Trips out to the country feature a lot in Emma's story. Mm -hmm. have to remember this area was... Very built up, very industrial. There were wars, there were factories. It was pretty grim round here. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe now. We're looking out of the window, you know, quite a nice neighbourhood, really. But it was rough and it was also grim. And from from managing a tenancy block, her interest in the temperance movement brought her to the Old Vic, which I understand that she opened up and uh, presented entertainments and education in a unique combination. Yes, Emma's interest in temperance goes way back, and that's how Samuel Morley comes into the picture. She saw the effects of alcohol on the tenants. There was a lot of wife-beating going on and very miserable for the women. Um, so she started with the Old Vic, which had been a theatre and had been empty for a while, and managed to buy the lease for it and opened it as the Royal Victoria Coffee House and Tavern. And no drink was served at all, but it was advertised as entertainment for the whole family. So it's cheap food, coffee, cakes and an entertainment as well. So I understand she put on Shakespeare and opera as well as... Later on, yes, yes, but at the beginning it was very much variety. Oh, right. You know, the performing dogs mm -hmm. and jugglers and all that sort of thing. But that didn't pay the way. So things she diversified into were actually these penny science lectures. These started in about 1880, so quite early on in the Vic's career. Um, and she put an advert in a journal called Nature, which is actually still going, advertising for people to come and do lectures. And these became really successful and the cheapest seats were a penny, hence they were known as the Penny Science Lectures. And she managed to get some pretty famous people in to do this, famous people of the time, um, and quite intriguing titles like How, How to Speak to a Man 100 Miles Away on the Telephone. Um, some slightly dubious now, some of the content. <laughs> We'd say it was dubious. But they were all backed up by experiments, live experiments in the wow. Olympic and lantern <clears throat> slides, and something called dissolving views, which is where you have two magic lanterns and you get special effects. Oh, it sounds quite dramatic, actually. I think this could and, have been And well-suited for the theatre. Yeah. Yes. I think for, you know, working people who had no television, no radio, no cinema even, mm -hmm. this must have been really amazing. Mm. And it was the era of um, self-education and and striving for for better for aspiration aspirations for for the working classes through education yes absolutely i mean people were leaving school probably at 12 13 14 my grandmother left school at 12 mm -hmm. and she was born in 1901 so you can see the picture um it was mainly male dominated however because the men could get away of an evening and the women often couldn't um, and that lasted for quite a long time, really. Women were always admitted on equal grounds, but they found it hard to actually get out mm, of their homes. The practicalities of life mm. got in the way. So perhaps you could tell us about what happened with the First World War and its effect on the college, which was now going from strength to strength after it was endowed by Samuel Morley. 
who was a businessman, I understand, and who uh, really was instrumental in setting up the fabric of the, of the college. Yes, yeah, Samuel Morley was an incredible man. He was an MP for Bristol and Nottingham at different times. He was a textile manufacturer. His factory still stands in Nottingham. In fact, I gave a talk in one of them a few years ago, which was a great privilege. Mm. And they have a great oral history tradition there of people that worked in his factories. A good employer, I think. He was very taken with the work that Emma was doing he was. here. Yes, he would go to the science lectures and he wrote very, very warmly of how, how lovely they were, the atmosphere. Um, and gradually out of the science lectures came Morley. Apparently some students approached Emma and said, can we have some proper teaching? Can we have classes? And she started a few classes, did some inquiries and said, yes, you know, money could be found. And they started to knock the dressing rooms together. The old Vic being a pretty old theatre is obviously for small rooms, mm. and they knocked dressing rooms together to make temporary classrooms and gradually took over a huge amount of the backstage, which was insulated against noise in both directions. Apparently wasn't all that good. You sometimes could hear the performances in the classes <laughs> and the classes in the performances. <laughs> um, so, so gradually Morley got going with, I think, four classes and then it grew and it grew. And in 1889, it became a proper college and got grants from the government and then really began to pick up. And the students were well provided for. They had a gymnasium in the building. They had a very large library, which also acted as a common room. They did concerts. They had a grand piano in it. It sounds really thriving. It sounds and lovely. Yes, absolutely. And, it, and it's lovely now as well. It's grown. It's lovely. Yes. Yeah. yes. And we have a lovely picture of the ladies in the gymnasium, 1895, with their Indian clubs, wearing quite flowing dresses. <laughs> and you think, what kind of gym could they have done in those? <laughs> it seems to be a lot of twirling of clubs, but <laughs> fun all the same. And they obviously enjoyed it. Mm. So along comes the First World War, <clears throat> and that changes what's happening here quite significantly. Yes. Um, I mean, the First World War broke out in September, so almost as soon as the students came back, and the obvious thing was the number of men dropped sharply. But interestingly, the number of women grew and grew and grew, and at one point it was double the number of men. And we looked at all the figures from 1910 to 1925, in 1914, there were about half and half men and women, and then it really rose sharply and the number of men decreased and decreased and decreased until 1919 when they started to come back. It never seems to have changed since. We have two-thirds women to one-third men. Mm -hmm. Well, that just shows that it's offering good, accessible education for all in the in in the surrounding area, which is very it's very successful. Yes, First so, World yes. War is an interesting period to yes. look at because of what they were offering. Lots of first aid courses mm -hmm. and interesting. Oh, that is really interesting. A isn't lot it? of the male students went on to work yes. for the Royal Army Medical Corps. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, because mm -hmm. I tracked all the students who were mentioned in the magazines, and it was over two hundred and twenty oh, had served, and that was current students, former students, mm -hmm. members of staff. And that's interesting that so many actually use their education at Morley. Um, French was very popular at the time, but mm -hmm. German faded away during the First World yes, War. Which is probably... As you can imagine, <laughs> was not a popular language to be learning. No, but it would have been very useful, of course, if of more course. people who can speak German, of course. Um, so there's Emma running the college. Um, 
She was very highly regarded, wasn't she? She was very much loved by the people who came here. Um, and by this time, she was in her 60s, 70s. Yes. And, mm. and probably ready to retire. No, she never did retire. She never retired. Never retired. Oh, that is amazing. No. She worked very hard, apparently, has her, in her role at Surrey Lodge. She always had a penknife and a ball of string in her pocket so she could do running repairs, which we thought was lovely. <laughs> but she was a small lady. She was described as sweet-looking, grey-haired, always wore black. Very, very few photos of Emma, but she looks very similar in all of them. Mm -hmm. And she had a very old-fashioned hat, which one of our hat tutors recreated for oh, this exhibition. Amazing. Yes. We had an exhibition about Emma in 2012, so we've got Emma's hat somewhere. <laughs> So um, she uh, uh, she uh, died when she I can't remember when she died. Nineteen twelve. Nineteen twelve. All right. So she didn't make make the beginning of the First World War. No. She, um, but she she was given an amazing send off, wasn't she? She had a fantastic yes, funeral. Yes, her funeral was amazing. Somebody gave me a first hand account of it. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but. Um, she was actually taken down to Hever in Kent, where she spent a lot of time, but there was a big procession around this area, around Waterloo, so all our tenants could say goodbye. And the oh, people that from the is old lovely, Vic. isn't it? By this time, she'd really handed the running of Old Vic to her niece, Lillian mm -hmm. Bayliss. And Lillian Bayliss has become more well-known than Emma, really. Yes, yes. She's certainly well-known in South London and across the world mm. for her work at, at the Old Vic. And of course, we have a Bayliss Road, a yes. stone's throw from here. Yes. Emma Conn's... Uh, as by establishing this college, was really thinking about the the people who needed the, the uh, services offered here, the learning offered here, and how they were really entitled to it. You know, because it was so difficult to get adult further education, um, and I, I think it really shows that she understood the lives of of working people because she was one, unlike many of the wonderful men and and many women who contributed funds to the college, but perhaps came from a different social class and were looking at it with mm. a different perspective. That's very true, because the other ladies associated with the college were definitely wealthy. Mm -hmm. Caroline Martineau became the second principal um, when the first one left, and she did that unpaid for ten years. Now, because she could. She could, yes. and she had her, several homes. She had one in Norfolk, she had one in... Um, Bayswater and she also lived here occasionally so she gave a lot of her own money to the college and also let the students use her Norfolk home for holidays and she wasn't the only one. Mm -hmm. So it's lovely to know that there are a number of people around at that time who had perhaps had a more relaxed attitude to the difference in social rank um, and it, that perhaps it wasn't such a severe era as we sometimes assume mm. it is that that some of the uh, boundaries between people were beginning to fray and, and relax a bit yes. but there's Emma Connors who's come up really through her own talent and application and made this wonderful career for herself but also established something that is going from strength to strength and is really thriving now with huge array of courses for adults looking for education. Yes, she would be amazed to see yes. what's going on here. Yes, I'm sure she'd be very proud. The Old Vic, which is less than half a mile away from where we're sitting at Morley College, 
was uh, established in 1819 as a, as a place of popular entertainment. And I found it interesting that Emma Cons chose this location to start her penny le- lectures. Can you tell us a bit more about the old Vic, Elena? Well, it was a place of definite ill repute when she bought it and there was violence and the police wouldn't go singly of a Saturday evening. It was decidedly rough. So she decided to clean up the act, really, get rid of the drinking, get some more salubrious entertainment. But it certainly wasn't posh fare. Um, these variety performances, dancing dogs and various other acts and jugglers, lots and lots of different acts in an evening. So it was a popular entertainment, not at all highbrow. It didn't always pay the way, so they put some ballad concerts on and then the penny lectures. They also used it for church services on Sundays. Gosh. Well, I suppose it had a huge capacity at that time. Oh, it was big. It was yes. a big theatre. That's how Morley managed to lose itself in the back rooms, I think. There was plenty of space. Yes, yes, it's quite substantial, isn't it? So, yeah, there's a lot going on at the old fit, but it didn't ever really pay. I think it always struggled. Emma was known for her... Uh, careful housekeeping let's say mm-hmm. and uh, apparently she didn't take Charlie Chaplin on for an act because he failed to put a stamped addressed envelope in with his application <laughs> it was rejected and life could have been very different for him then. <laughs> very much he so. was probably better off going off to America <laughs> in the end um, and Emma Cons is, is remembered at the Old Vic and there's a plaque there now, isn't, isn't there, Elaine? And I wondered if you could read a bit from, from the plaque. Yes, yeah, so the original plaque unfortunately just wore away with time and pollution and it was redone a few years ago. Um, they had trouble finding out what was actually written on this plaque. It's an engraved one. It's engraved in stone on the corner of the building. It's quite hard to read even now. It's been recut because it's high up. Emma Cons, founder of the Vic, alderman of the first London County Council, born 1837, died 1912. Lover of beauty and pupil of Ruskin, she yet gave up the life of an artist for social work. So deeply did she sympathise with those who lack many of the good things in life. To improve housing for working men and women, to provide wholesome and joyous recreation at a low price, to promote education, to protect infant life and to bring a human touch to the children in the industrial schools of her day. To such beneficent ends she gave her very self. Large-hearted and clear-sighted, courageous, tenacious of purpose and of great personal modesty, her selfless appeal drew out the best in others and was a constant inspiration for service to all with whom she was associated. Thank you. That's beautiful. You come to the end of our podcast. My name is Lena Augustenson and I'm the producer. And I am Naomi Clifford, history writer. All details of this episode are on our website, thedoorpodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook. On Twitter, we are at The Door Podcast. You can subscribe to us as well, and uh, on any of the platforms that we're on, just follow the links. You can also sign up for a newsletter on our website, which will tell you when the next episode drops. 
And yeah, I think that's it. That is it. Yes. Yeah.